Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Professor Jonathan Daniel Wells, who is a social, cultural, and intellectual historian interested in the literary, cultural, and political evolution of 19th century America. He is the author or editor of 10 books and has presented his work to audiences across the United States and internationally. Currently, he is the acting director of Residential College at the University of Michigan. Michigan, excuse me, is a professor of African-American and African studies, professor of history and arts and the ideas in the humanities program. Today, we are discussing his book, The Kidnapping Club, Wall Street Slavery and Resistance on the Eve of the Civil War. Professor Wells, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. Uh, It is uh, a true story about uh, a group of lawyers, police officers, uh, judges, and other actors who uh, really conspired to make freedom precarious for Black people in New York City before the Civil War. And uh, it's based on uh, considerable research uh, in the archives, particularly in uh, early 19th century newspapers. And um, it was a tough book to write, but I think uh, it reveals a great deal about uh, life for African Americans in the antebellum North. How did you come across this topic? Well, I was uh, researching uh, a book for uh, a, a lecture series I did at Mercer University a few years ago, the Lamar Lectures. And that book was primarily about uh, the fugitive slave crisis and the growth uh, or the evolution of a northern sectional identity and how that uh, unfolded to uh, help us on the path to civil war. And in the process, uh, I was doing a lot of research on the fugitive slave crisis. And uh, I read da- um, Graham Hodges' excellent biography of David Ruggles. I read uh, Leslie Harris's book on Antebellum New York. And I read uh, Leslie Alexander's book on Antebellum New York. And I kept coming across uh, references to this group called the Kidnapping Club. And uh, usually uh, the references were kind of cursory, um, despite the amazing research that scholars have done uh, on Antebellum New York City and slavery. And I really wanted to explore what this group of people uh, was about. What were they doing? You know, who exactly comprised this so-called kidnapping club? Uh, what was entailed in capturing somebody off the streets of New York and taking them into Southern slavery? And uh, it was really just an exploration on something I was uh, catching glimpses of in other uh, monographs that I really want to to follow up on and flesh out uh, in a little bit more detail. 
Did you face any challenges as you were writing the kidnapping club? If so, what were they? Well, yeah, there were a lot of challenges. Um, and some of the most uh, frustrating challenges are lack of information about the ultimate end uh, of some of these fugitive uh, slave cases. We get glimpses of people being kidnapped off the streets of New York City, uh, particularly children that appear in New York newspapers and appear in private writings and even sometimes appear in uh, remaining court documents that have survived the passage of time. But uh, sometimes you understand that uh, this person has been kidnapped, they've been taken uh, before a judge, and then it's left there uh, in a sense of not really knowing you know, what the ultimate outcome of the case was. So yeah, that was uh, occasionally uh, very frustrating. And of course, we have precious uh, few documents from the black community uh, in New York City before the Civil War. Uh, we have a lot of newspapers, which are incredibly vital and important archives uh, on which we can depend. Um, but, you know, so little of the diaries and the letters and the sort of day-to-day -day experience of Black New Yorkers before the Civil War ha has been lost. So, you know, that that's what, those were things that were a bit frustrating, but I did my best to try to work around them. And you did. And you created a wonderfully written narrative about what happened. For my own dissertation, I have been looking at Harriet Jacobs' incidents in the life of a slave girl. And, you know, one of the things, as you know, she says is, I was, in fact, a slave in New York, as subject to the slave laws as I have been in a slave state. Strange incongruity in a state called free. And also in the kidnapping club, you wrote, New York City is the most potent pro-slavery and pro-South city north of the Mason-Dixon line. So that begs the question, how have people imagined antebellum New York and what was the reality? Well, I think there's been some really interesting work uh, by important historians, including um, Eric Foner. I mean, just an, uh, amazing writers and amazing researchers. And they've uncovered a lot of the abolitionist side of pre-Civil War New York. And there was indeed a very active and very important group. Uh, it was a biracial group of white and black uh, New Yorkers who absolutely risked their lives uh, to fight against slavery and to battle against these uh, so-called fugitive slave renditions. And chief among them, uh, of course, was David Ruggles, who was sort of you know, for lack of a better term, the hero of the book. Um, but there was a darker, much bleaker uh, side of antebellum New York City that I think ha to some extent has been lost, maybe not so much among academic historians, uh, but maybe uh, lost to the broader reading public. I mean, it's not surprising because today we think of New York City as, you know, in large part, politically progressive, pluralistic, um, you know, inclusive, despite the fact that there have been extremely uh, dark chapters in the recent history of New York City, including Stop and Frisk, for example. So it's not to paint it even today as a, some kind of utopia, but it uh, is seen to be a, a pluralistic place that it, it welcomes people from all over the world. 
When you look at uh, the 19th century, it's a much different story. New York City is a much different place. And that's why I have said in the book and elsewhere that it's the most pro-slavery, pro-South city north of the Mason-Dixon line. It is heavily dominated by uh, politically by the Democratic Party, which in this period of American history is the party that's most uh, likely to promote white supremacy and be sort of racially uh, reactionary. And uh, there are a host of other reasons which we can certainly talk about, particularly uh, with the rise of the commercial side of New York and the financial side of New York, uh, exemplified by the rise of Wall Street. But I really wanted to delve deeply into how this city that we so often look to today for this sort of progressive ideology was, in fact, uh, a much different place not that long ago. I agree. And, you know, with that in mind, what was the New York Kidnapping Club and how did it get its name? Well, the, the name comes from uh, David Ruggles. And David Ruggles is just a remarkable black activist before the Civil War. And he is someone, I think, who deserves to be much better known uh, in public life than he is. Uh, Graham Hodges' uh, book on uh, David Ruggles, it's a great biography. I urge anybody who's interested in exploring more detail uh, about um, David Ruggles' life to turn to that book. Uh, But it's Ruggles, the black activist who seems like he is just everywhere all at once uh, in the alleyways of uh, lower Manhattan. He goes to Brooklyn. He roves the wharves around um, the East River and the Battery and the Hudson River. And he is always with his ear to the ground to to learn about any uh, form of injustice happening to uh, black New Yorkers, especially uh, fugitive slave captures. He's the one who calls this group the Kidnapping Club. And he names them publicly in his newspaper called the Mirror of Liberty. And some of the issues uh, are freely available online in digitized format. So if some of the listeners would like to see what the paper looks like, uh, you can you can hop online and do that. And within the pages of this uh, newspaper, and David Ruggles was himself a journalist, uh, he, as I said, publicly names Richard Riker, who's the city recorder, uh, Daniel Nash, who's a police officer, Thomas, uh, Tobias Budno, who's a police officer, Fontaine Pettis, uh, a great 19th century name there, uh, who is uh, a Virginia lawyer who has m- removed himself to New York City with the express goal of establishing a fugitive slave capture business. And so there are other people who are sort of, you know, more ancillary to this thing called the Kidnapping Club. But those were the people who were sort of at the apex uh, of this group that David Ruggles so boldly uh, labeled the Kidnapping Club. Now, were their actions against the black population legal? Uh, In large part, yes. Uh, In fact, Tobias Boudinot who is uh, one of the the arch uh, actors here in the kidnapping club. He's a police officer in New York all throughout this antebellum period, the 30s, 40s, and 1850s. And uh, he carries with him uh, basically a blanket writ that allows him, with the authority of the governor of New York, 
uh, to arrest anyone he might even remotely consider to be a runaway slave. And uh, as you might imagine, there's not really any substantial proof needed. Um, he doesn't have much to go on. And he doesn't really care uh, whether somebody is, in fact, born free or a, a runaway. And uh, he uses this blanket writ, this govern, governor's authority, to really wreak havoc on the liberty of black New Yorkers for uh, many, many years. And uh, I mentioned that David Ruggles is kind of the heroic figure in the book. Um, again, for, for lack of a better word, in some ways, Riker, uh, the city recorder, and Tobias Boudinot, the police officer, they are the arch villains uh, of the story because they conspired, those two in particular, uh, to make life precarious uh, for black New Yorkers. How difficult, as you mentioned, they, you know, that they have this legal writ document, how difficult difficult was it for black people to prove their freedom? Could they even prove it? Well, uh, that's a very good question. And it does change over time. And, and that's important to note. Um, when the kidnapping club is at its height in terms of its uh, activities, and, and I'm talking here mostly about the 1830s, there are really no laws that are in place in the state uh, of New York that prevents uh, somebody like Boudinot capturing what they claim is a, a runaway, collecting a reward, taking that person before the city recorder, sometimes in the middle of the night, and within a, a mere matter of hours, uh, whisking that person into Southern slavery. And in the 1830s especially, it is so easy and streamlined that the kidnapping club operates with just this ruthless efficiency. And people are whisked off the streets of New York City, including children, taken uh, before Riker, taken uh, on a boat uh, to Southern slavery before their relatives even know they're missing. I mean, this is how uh, quick this can happen. Um, there's really nothing standing in their way. But a couple of uh, laws that are passed in the 1840s are, are fairly significant in thwarting at least this ruthless efficiency uh, that I just mentioned. One of them is uh, a kidnapping law that New York State passes, and uh, it provides for a jury trial in the cases of people accused of being a runaway. Now, uh, that helps a lot because that does slow down uh, the activities of Boudinot and Riker and others. Uh, it by no means guarantees, uh, as you might imagine, anything resembling justice. The problem is uh, that the whole court system, and, and particularly judges like Riker, who's a you know, sort of Jacksonian Democrat and therefore uh, has complete uh, lack of sympathy for the plight of uh, black people, uh, they are, you know, listening to these cases and hearing so-called evidence. And it's absolutely the case that um, very little evidence was required on the part of the white claimant um, to demonstrate that this person was, in fact, uh, you know, the runaway from Virginia two years ago. Now, African-Americans who are accused of being runaways could uh, present evidence, and they absolutely worked very hard to do so. Uh, they declared their freedom, but then they were able to gather together people in the black community who would argue 
uh, for example, that they had known uh, this person, you know, for the last 20 years. So they couldn't possibly be uh, the runaway from Virginia two years ago or 10 years ago. And it's pretty clear that um, both sides are performing here a, a kind of dramatic dance. It's pretty clear that uh, the, the white claimants are, you know, perfectly at ease uh, with their uh, creation of evidence to demonstrate that somebody's a runaway. And it's pretty clear that on the other side that, you know, African-Americans can be found at the ready to um, argue the contrary. So the bottom line is uh, absolutely black people could and did protest, particularly after the 1840s, but it did not stop either the kidnappings um, perpetrated by the kidnapping club or more generally uh, the arrest of fugitives all the way to the Civil War. That is just so mind boggling as you're saying this to hear this about as you know, you think of cosmopolitan New York and you shed light on that dark chapter. But that begs the question, why was New York so interested in Southern slavery and how was that connected to Wall Street? But you do a great job of providing the linkages between the two in your book. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Uh, In general, the rise of New York City is an international phenomenon. Uh, It's just an amazing uh, explosion of population in the city. Throughout the years before the Civil War, it's the uh, story of a a financial capital that emerges uh, really with the only rival being London uh, around the globe. And uh, the problem is uh, a significant uh, part of the rise of New York, both financially uh, as well as its population and and other uh, politically, is tied to Southern slavery. So all of those uh, hundreds of thousands, by the time we get to the eve of the Civil War, uh, bales of cotton that are being grown by enslaved labor in the South, uh, they have to be shipped either to New England or to the UK uh, in order to be processed into linens or uh, fine uh, clothing or curtains or whatever whatever the the finished product uh, is going to be. That's not being done there in the South. So uh, that facilitation of the movement of cotton is completely insured, financed, um, and uh, facilitated by New York's Wall Street. It's banking industry, it's insurance industry, it's shipping industry. And New York City knows uh, exactly the importance uh, of the trade with with Southern cotton. It's um, completely open about the desire, uh, even the necessity of maintaining that trade. And if, uh, you know, some untold number of African-Americans who may or may not be free have to be sacrificed to maintain the union with the South along the way, then so be it. And um, they uh, in New York are are very much pro-Democratic Party, pro-union. And in their view, Uh, The Constitution requires, and they're not wrong because it does, require northern communities to uh, return suspected runaways. It's right there in the original Constitution. And the argument is that if if, uh, they do things like um, Boston is doing, if they uh, put uh, blocks or obstacles in the way of returning runaways, the South is going to pull back. It's going to retract 
its um, dedication to New York financiers, its entanglement with New York shipping industries, and it's going to search for other opportunities for insurance uh, other than Wall Street. And you know there are southern threats that are constantly being made uh, in in the newspapers. So New Yorkers pick up on this, uh, and so they're very concerned that all their uh, prosperity, their growing um, role as a global metropolis and financial capital, is in jeopardy if they don't participate eagerly and actively in what the Constitution requires, which is the return of runaways. Needless to say, in the case of people like Richard, Richard Riker. Uh, and Fernando Wood, who is um, a mayor of New York City, that constitutional obligation dovetails quite conveniently uh, with their deep-seated uh, racism. Wow, that is just so amazing to hear. Now, what about New York's Black community? What was their day-to-day life like for them? And you do a great job of showing that in the Kidnapping Club. Yeah, thanks. You know, as bleak as the story of kidnappings um, can be to research and read, for sure, I I didn't want this just to be that. You know, I wanted the book to tell stories of people who, under oppressive conditions, managed to fall in love and have families and go to work and raise children and uh, build sustainable, uh, stable communities. And um, both Leslie Alexander and Leslie Harris do this really wonderfully in in their two books, talking about um, the the neighborhoods that black people created uh, in pre-Civil War New York City. The numbers are not huge, right? So your your listeners will know that it's not really until the 20th century that uh, African-Americans will move to the North in significant numbers during the first and second great migrations. But in this period, in New York City, uh, black people are a, an extreme minority. We're only talking 15 to 20,000 uh, black people living in New York City. And yet, despite that relatively small number, uh, particularly in, in regard to a proportion of the overall population, they have uh, really powerfully stable, important uh, churches, religious networks, uh, community organizations, and... Um, you know, one of them, of course, is destroyed, uh, as Leslie Alexander points out, to make way for the building of Central Park in New York. So there's a, a long-standing disregard for the importance of these communities. But I really wanted to, to do my best to highlight, uh, you know, how important it was for, you know, people, despite segregation, despite racism, despite the nefarious activities of the kidnapping club, Yet, you know, they worked hard every day uh, to sustain themselves and their families. That they did. And you showed that. And but unfortunately, there were those bleak moments because you mentioned one of the things was that the kidnapping club was not just getting them off the streets. They were actually going into their homes and taking out whole families. Um, Can you speak a little bit about that? So, um, The one thing that black families feared perhaps more than anything was that knock at the door that came in the middle of the night. And um, of course, you know, we know from our modern society that a phone call uh, in the middle of the night is is rarely uh, good news. 
But um, for people in New York City who were black, who were trying their best to steer clear of Tobias Budno and the other members of the kidnapping club, that's what they feared uh, the most. And um, a lot of uh, black families kept uh, weapons in their house. Uh, they kept knives. And uh, they were going to defend themselves and their loved ones at all costs, including with their lives. Uh, there's a famous uh, example that my colleague Steve Kantrowitz talks about in uh, his study of, of Boston uh, abolitionists, and Carrie Greenidge does this too, about Lewis Hayden having uh, a black activist having a powder keg under, underneath his front porch in Boston that he was ready to light anytime some uh, kidnapper tried to take him into slavery. So they were willing uh, and, and um, certainly uh, bold enough to carry out uh, a self-defense. And David Ruggles, for example, was one of the early uh, African-Americans arguing that absolutely black people had a had the uh, right to self-defense if a slave catcher knocked on their door in the middle of the night. Because of this potential danger, uh, you know, sometimes officers like Nash and Boudinot would uh, approach a black person on the street or knock on their door and say, you know, we have evidence that you stole a watch from, you know, Mr. Smith yesterday afternoon. And uh, knowing full well that they had no involvement in such a uh, theft, you know, they might uh, go with Boudinot and Nash before, of course, when they realize that they're actually being arrested for, for kidnapping, you know, for the purposes of kidnapping, for being a runaway. So, you know, it, it, it's uh, just an incredible story filled with spies and networks and the abolitionists like Ruggles are, you know, ready to sound the alarm when families are in jeopardy or, or anybody else is in, in peril. And uh, it really, I think, uh, causes us to rethink what we've assumed uh, the antebellum North was like for black people. That is very true. And I'm, you know, another Besides going into their homes, another really disturbing element as I was reading the book was their, the kidnapping of children, children, you know, off the street, children in classrooms. Can you talk a little bit about that? And also the particular case of Henry Scott and how that impacted um, the city? Yes, for sure. Uh, it's it's the toughest part to, to to read, I think, in the book, these stories of, you know, small children uh, being kidnapped. And it's easy to see, perhaps, why they were uh, easy prey. I mean, children are impressionable. You know, they can, they can be enticed with a piece of candy or the promise of payment. Uh, they change their physical appearance very quickly, you know, as they age. And so uh, children are, unfortunately, not just the target in New York City, but in places like Philadelphia. I mean, there's this um, uh, really the, the one of the first serial killers uh, who are female in Philadelphia. It's a woman named Patty Cannon. And if you would like to read more about that, um, you can you can certainly Google that episode. But again, not many people know about the story of Patty Cannon, a woman who lived on the Dell Marva Peninsula, and who operated this uh, ring of people who would entice young black Philadelphians uh, 
uh, perhaps with a little bit of uh, promise of a, you know, an apple or something like that. And uh, before they knew it, they were finding themselves shackled in the basement uh, of uh, a shop where they were going to be eventually taken into slavery in the South. So, you know, this is this is not just New York City, but it is true that, uh, you know, New York City for a long time is a place that is dangerous for black children. Uh, the story of Henry Scott, and, and by the way, if the readers are interested in uh, more about the, the kidnapping in Philadelphia, they can turn to uh, the book called Stolen, who is by uh, the book by my colleague and friend Richard Bell got a really interesting book about Patty Cannon in, in that episode. But back to New York City, and particularly Henry Scott, I mean, this is a young child, he's about seven years old, practicing his letters as he's sitting in school one Saturday in the 1830s. He's in the African Free School. And uh, as he's sitting there with his classmates and his teacher, uh, the door bursts open and in walks uh, two white men he's never seen before. One of them uh, is a local sheriff, uh, from uh, the New York um, officers um, authority. And the other is a white uh, Southerner who has moved to New York and they have come to kid, uh, take Henry uh, as a runaway slave. And you can just imagine, you know, what kind of chaos and, and havoc this, this uh, generates. Children are screaming and they're crying. Uh, they run in all directions. They shout kidnappers, kidnappers. And uh, nonetheless, they are successful in taking Henry Scott um, before Richard Riker, who's absolutely convinced in the case of pretty much every black person who comes before his court, uh, that Henry Scott is in fact a runaway. Uh, the, the way the law works is that you're supposed to either be the person who is the so-called owner, uh, you know, making this claim, or you were supposed to have pretty clear, unequivocal documents indicating that you are acting as an agent on that person's behalf. In this case, um, the Hacksaw family doesn't have that level of proof. Um, the person making the claim is related to the owner, but he's not the owner and he's not got anything indicating that he's acting as the owner's representative. Nonetheless, Riker being who he is says, well, that's okay. You know, let's put Henry Scott into uh, incarceration while you go and get the necessary, you know, documents that you need. And, uh, you know, this is the kind of callousness and, and, and brutality that uh, black children are exposed to uh, here in, um, in antebellum New York City. There are, again, important to remember that there are people fighting against this. They are brave. Uh, they are uh, willing to you know, put their own lives and sometimes their own fortunes on the line. David Ruggles is such a great example of that. Um, but you know, the, the, they're in an extreme minority. The uh, abolitionist community tries to fight against these kinds of things. And uh, unfortunately, the political, legal, and economic apparatus uh, that's been constructed as New York City rises to global prominence has, uh, you know, much of the time rendered their efforts uh, pointless. Now, were there others besides Gotham's elites who targeted African-Americans? What about the poor white populations or the immigrants? Did they also target African-Americans as well during this time? Uh, yes, and that's especially true, of course, after the significant um, 
immigration of people from Ireland beginning in the 1840s and lasting uh, into the 1850s. And uh, I mentioned that uh, prominent figures like Richard Riker, Fernando Wood, uh, other white politicians who align themselves with the Democratic Party uh, are often also politically aligned with Tammany Hall. And together, the Democratic Party and Tammany Hall as a sort of political machine uh, control the politics of pre-Civil War New York City. And to a significant extent, they rely on the Irish immigrant, immigrant community uh, for that political uh, electoral power. So uh, there are two um, New Yorkers I'll mention. Uh, one of them is a guy named John Van Every, and the other is a guy named Rushmore Horton. And I write about this in an article I published in uh, March 2022 in uh, Civil War History, the journal. And these two guys uh, are Democrats. Uh, they are um, perfectly aligned with Tammany Hall. And they have a newspaper that they publish all throughout the antebellum, you know, the late antebellum period, the Civil War, and even after the Civil War, which has the unfortunate title of the Weekly Caucasian. And this is a white supremacist newspaper published weekly in the heart of Manhattan. And what, um, you know, the political arm of, of uh, Tammany Hall is doing in concert with journalists like Van Every and Horton, what they are doing is appealing to the Irish immigrant community uh, by saying your jobs are in jeopardy, your salary, you know, your pay is in, in jeopardy. Uh, the reason why you have uh, miserable lives and poor living conditions and your children are growing up in filth is uh, because of um, you know, black people taking your jobs. And this is an all too familiar trope uh, in American history. And uh, it's one, of course, that we've been experiencing in Amer our American politics in the last you know, five or 10 years. You know, this notion that the problems that you face as a poor white American are somehow you know, not due to the injustices of capitalism or um, deindustrialization or uh, the meth epidemic or, or anything else that, uh, you know, these sort of genuinely um, difficult and, and substantive, substantive uh, problems that people are facing, instead of confronting those major real issues, you know, let's point to this group over here and, um, you know, scapegoat them. And that's exactly what's going on here in Antebellum, New York City. So, yes, um, there are Irish immigrants who have been um, sort of uh, brainwashed is, is maybe too strong a term. Maybe it isn't. Um, but they have certainly been uh, taught to believe that the black community in New York City is their enemy. And, it, and it, you know, we need no further evidence of that than the New York City uh, draft riots in uh, 1863, which were essentially you know, race riots in which uh, Irish Americans roamed the streets of, of uh, Manhattan and uh, killed uh, innocent black people in their rage. It's so interesting that, you know, these groups are, you know, essentially the Irish are influenced by this rhetoric rather than, as you say, capitalism is at its core as to why you are not moving up in society. Let's rather, let's say, yes, it's because of black people. Thus, you, can, you do not have a common enemy here. It's one in which we're going to pit you against each other. 
and that and it was remarkably successful that they did that and as you mentioned it's still going on today um it was remarkably successful in 2016 and you know yeah absolutely um that's exactly what happened let's let's not um you know solve the real uh fundamental problems that your community in in rural Michigan is facing, you know, let's blame it on so-called invasion of people coming over the border as as if the two have anything to do with each other. But it's been very effective in American history. It's uh, that kind of demagoguery uh, has has always been powerful. And we'd like to think we're somehow above it in American politics today. But uh, I think the last uh, few years have proven otherwise. I know you still have that demagoguery here in 2023, and it's hard to actually say that. It's amazing that you can say that out loud as we're we're talking about the 19th century. And yet in 2023, we still have it today. And that's so mind boggling. But I guess if it worked then, it's still working now. Um, Unfortunately, that's the case. You know, sometimes I ask my students, why do we study history? And a lot of times students will, the first thing they'll say is, so we we can learn from our past mistakes. Um, And I have to say, you know, that almost never happens. And, uh, you know, we're we're able to look back and say, well, it's a shame that Irish Americans uh, were being fanned into hatred toward black people. And yet, um, you know, we see it all around us in the present. I know that that is true. That's one of the things you often ask. What can you learn? And they say we learn from our mistakes. I not exactly. I, I think that's a <laughs> mis- I think that's a misnomer. That's yeah. a misnomer. That's a wish. That's a wish. I think that we all have. Now, one of your the main heroes of the story is David Ruggles, as you figure. And it was so mind boggling that he was everywhere, as you said, at once. His ear was constantly to the ground of everything that was going on. He was just in the thick of it. You know, he was there for everything. And one of those moments that I was reading about in your book, and there were so many that stood out, was one that happened in Brooklyn that involved three enslaved people living in, in the home of a Savannah businessman. Can you speak a little bit about that episode? Because it was just like, wow, this yeah. is happening. Yeah, right in the heart of Brooklyn. Uh, there is the Dodge family. Uh, they're originally uh, from Savannah, but they have a house in Brooklyn and, um, you know, they are, they're, they're not uh, fly by night. They're not there on, on a vacation. They actually live in a house in Brooklyn. And the Dodge family uh, has taken uh, three of their enslaved people with them as they've, uh, you know, left uh, the South and come into uh, Brooklyn. And Ruggles hears about this, uh, that in fact, there, there are these three um, black people being held as slaves right underneath the nose of, um, you know, New York City. And so being the fearless uh, person that he is, he goes across um, the East River, knocks on the door of the Dodge family, and Mr. Dodge is not home. Um, so Mrs. Dodge, the the woman of the house, is there and, and basically asks Ruggles what he wants. And Ruggles says, you know, I hear that you're holding people against their will, contrary to the laws against slavery in New York City, uh, New York State. And, you know, she says that's not true. And, and 
they go down to the basement where apparently these three people are, are being hidden. And um, the Mrs. Dodge says to them, well, tell this man that, you know, I'm not holding you as, as slavery, as a uh, slave. Um, and you get paid for the work that you do here in the house. And uh, much to um, Ruggles' horror, they, they boldly say, you know, that's, that's BS. You don't pay us anything. Um, when, we met, when we don't do something uh, that you tell us, you hit us on the head. Uh, we are slaves and you're treating us as slaves and we have no freedom to leave. And then a neighbor comes in, a guy who's a doctor, and say, you know, says to Ruggles, what are, you, what are you here for? What are you on about? And so there's this remarkable, dramatic scene unfolding in the heart of Brooklyn. Um, and Ruggles is standing his ground. He says, you cannot do this. I'm taking these people with me. Um, and he does do that. He takes the, the three of them uh, with him back to Manhattan. Uh, there is uh, a network of abolitionists who uh, do their best to uh, get work for these people so that they can live as, as free people and earn a wage. But um, it just exemplifies, first of all, the audacity of um, you know, white New Yorkers in believing uh, that the city was so pro-slavery, so pro-South, that they can actually hold slaves you know, in the antebellum period uh, without fear of repercussions. But it also um, shows Ruggles at his best. Um, you know, he just is fearless um, with his own physical uh, being, so much so that his eyesight is failing. He seems to have uh, physical ailments that ultimately are going to cause him to uh, leave New York City not long after the episode with the Dodgers in Brooklyn. But, um, you know, if you walk along Les Bernard Street in Lower Manhattan today, you'll see a, pl- a plaque that's dedicated to uh, David Ruggles, which is great. I'm glad it's there. Um, but he's somebody, you know, who's really deserves to be publicly known, um, because he absolutely, in my view, at least is, is heroic in his fight against, uh, slavery and against kidnappings. I agree with everything that he did. And I think, you know, so much for people in their minds, you know, you have, prominent figures of the abolitionist movement and those who are involved in the anti-slavery movement. And in my opinion, I feel that Ruggles, he gets kind of left to the side for, what can I say, Frederick Douglass, who becomes like, you know, just, it's kind of like you have this one canonical figure that kind of becomes what it means. But Ruggles, he he was also really, really important. He risked his life for so much of what he was doing. Um, And as you noted, he left after all of this. It took a toll on his health. And I can only imagine, you know, what that was mentally and emotionally, the things that he saw and experienced and what he had to go through during that time. Yeah, you're absolutely right, because Ruggles himself uh, is arrested by Boudinot. Um, we, we have uh, documents from the court cases in the 1830s when Boudinot uh, arrests Ruggles and takes him before Riker. Uh, he's harassed by Boudinot. Um, he's shoved up against, you know, marble columns in City Hall. So, you know, there's this unbelievable constant stress. Um, the... The, the fearlessness that I've mentioned quite a few times, you know, comes with a physical cost. And um, at some point, he, he's just lost 
his overall health to such an extent that he uh, removes to New Bedford, Massachusetts, and then ultimately to Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, but, you know, in a way it's interesting because, you know, Ruggles, it's too much to say that he was a one-man show because, again, there was a, a very vibrant and important black and white abolitionist community in pre-Civil War New York. Um, but he is by far the one at the forefront. I mean, he knows Frederick Douglass. They they meet um you know, they, um, co you know, collaborate occasionally. Um, but once Ruggles leaves, it, it sort of opens up opportunities for other black and white abolitionists uh, to take on the, the mantle that he has left behind, the legacy uh, that he leaves. And uh, there are some bra very brave people. Charles B. Ray is one of them. Um, a lot of you know, James McCune Smith, a lot of very brave um, black men and even black women like Elizabeth Jennings. Um, they fight against, uh, you know, the segregation and the racism and, and the pro-slavery, pro-South sentiment that they uh, see uh, in the city in which they live. Now, you mentioned that there are others who are involved, especially in the abolitionist movement. Now, how was the support for the abolitionist movement? Was it something that kind of waxed and waned or, you know, was it there over, or did it change over time? I think it's safe to say that over time it becomes more organized and more potent. Um, you know, there are, there's an abolitionist society uh, in New York, um, anti-slavery society. They uh, meet regularly. Uh, they you know, they have publications, they print speeches, they have uh, co conventions and, and other meetings where the proceedings are published and made available. So, you know, it's a, it's a very important uh, community. And again, there's a lot of historical work on this uh, if readers are interested. But um, I, I think it's important to know about them and, and to give them their due, but also to understand in, in a deeper way what these people are up against, you know, as they fight against Wall Street, as they fight against the kidnapping club, as they fight against the Democratic Party and Tammany Hall, and as they fight against a legal system that has been essentially designed to um, cheapen uh, black lives. And so, you know, this is the battle that northern communities are fighting uh, before the Civil War. I wish we had, you know, polling data where we could say, okay, you know, 12 percent of, of, you know, white New Yorkers count themselves as abolitionists. Um, we'll never know because we just don't have that kind of, of detailed information. Um, we know that they're substantial. We know that they're uh, vociferous in their opposition to slavery. But we also know um that, um, boy, they had their work cut out for them. That they did. They were up against a system that had been put in place that was designed not for them to enact change. And you mentioned uh, Elizabeth Jennings, and, you know, she's also one of those figures in your book where it's like, yay, it was so great to read about her. And, you know, you stop, pause, and think, you know, she's doing what Rosa Parks did in the 20th century, but Jennings does it in the 19th century, which was so great to read about. 
Yeah, there's uh, a lot of stories to be told uh, about people, black people in New York City fighting against segregation. And that's particularly true in terms of uh, true in terms of public transportation. And, and you're right. I mean, we think of Rosa Parks uh, quite rightly as a heroic, iconic figure. But, you know, 100 years before we we see in the 1850s, Elizabeth Jennings with her friend uh, on their way to church. They're in a hurry. Uh, they're they're concerned that they're going to be late for the services. And so they hop on a streetcar uh, that is supposed to be for whites only. And um, they, the, the guy who is uh, in charge of maintaining order uh, on the um, on the streetcar tells them, you know, you got to get off. This is this is not for for black people. And um, they put up a fuss and they they. Um, make it make it clear that they're not absolute oops absolutely not going to leave and so um, the crewman who's there allows them to leave and says you know okay well you can stay as long as nobody else uh, on the streetcar complains or raises a fuss and then Elizabeth Jennings uh, having been insulted she she comes from a, a pretty prominent New York family and after all all she's doing is trying to get to church um, she says, you know, this guy's a real impudent fellow. And uh, the um, carman takes um, a, a umbrage at that and tries to throw her and her friend off. And uh, at one point, basically, Elizabeth Jennings' head is an upper torso is out of the, the streetcar. And, you know, she's holding on for dear life with her legs and, and her arms. And... Um, you know, ultimately, uh, a police officer sees what's going on and removes both Jennings and her friend from the streetcar. Uh, Jennings does not take this uh, lightly. Um, she's pretty, you know, physically um, beat up. She actually has to go to the hospital. Um, but she also, together with her father, Thomas, and with the help of um, the religious community and the, and the uh, in the black community, as well as the black uh, emerging elite, they file... Um, you know, a case against, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, against New York City for these uh, segregated practices. And remarkable and a surprise to everyone, uh, they actually win. And, I know. Yeah, I mean, shocking, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, you know, that's, it's so cool to, to think about and to see people putting their lives on the line and actually, you know, winning. Um, you know, you can just see the movie version where people stand up and applaud, you know? Um, so yeah, there was, this happened to Ruggles. He was kicked off uh, a segregated uh, stagecoach. It happened to the very prominent uh, black restaurateur, Thomas Downing, who was also, I mean, he, he's one of the wealthiest men in New York city, but that doesn't count for anything if you're black. And um, you know, so he was thrown off uh, transportation as well. So yeah, Jennings is a pretty, pretty interesting episode in the city's, you know, dramatic uh, history. That it was. And without spoiling things, because I want people to go out and read uh, the book, did the start of the Civil War help change the dynamic of the city? Uh, yes and no. Um, I, I think when you look at uh, New York City's mobilization for the Union, uh, it was pretty impressive. Uh, in early um, spring 1861, there's a hum uh, tremendous parade 
that is being held for the 7th Regiment from uh, New York that is going down to fight against the Confederacy. Uh, there's a lot of pro-Union sentiment. Uh, ultimately, uh, New York City, uh, particularly Wall Street, will help finance the tremendous cost uh, for the Union in terms of fighting this uh, four-year-long four war. And so, um, you know, I think there is a lot that changes. Uh, unfortunately, uh, by no means is it enough. I mean, again, in the middle of the Civil War in July 1863 are the deadly and brutal murderous uh, draft riots. So, um, you know, those are scars that, that the city bears for a long, long time. And in fact, uh, during and after the Civil War, in no small part due to the draft riot, uh, the population, the black population of the city declines, even as the overall population of the city continues to boom. And that's because uh, many New Yorkers uh, who are black decided to move to Brooklyn or, or move outside of the city uh, because of, of its, um, you know, white supremacist history. And, uh, you know, the, the, the to some degree, the kidnappings continue, um, you know, the the, the ways in which the political, legal, and economic systems are designed to make life precarious for black New Yorkers continues. And it's really not until much later in the 19th century and into the 20th century, uh, particularly, of course, with the emergence of Harlem, uh, when uh, black New Yorkers will really come to see New York City as home again. I agree. So what would you want readers to take away from the book? Well, uh, I think it's important to understand the legacy of slavery and racism, including in places where we might not be aware uh, that it was so potent. And um, um, this is by no means an attempt um, by any stretch to say, well, you know, look how bad New York City was. They, they had slavery, too. They, they made life miserable for black people, too, just like the American South did. You know, the American South, particularly, um, you know, the Deep South, participated in the slave trade and in slavery and white supremacy for uh, decades and hundreds of years. And nothing anybody can or should uh, do would take away or erase uh, the guilt uh, of the American South when it comes to, um, you know, the history of slavery. But it is, I think, important to remember after reading this book that, it's not like um, the North was a utopia for black people either. I mean, there were some places that were uh, easier for African-Americans to live and to prosper and to form families and, and take on jobs than others. I mean, Boston, to some degree, is a place where black people do feel more protected, even though there are way too many examples uh, like that of the George Latimer case um, which uh, your listeners could read about in, on Wikipedia, um, the Latimer case, which is is a pretty horrific incident of, you know, sort of uh, attempt to take a self-emancipated man uh, into slavery. Uh, but it is true that uh, there are also pockets of New York, of uh, the North, like New York City, where it is a very different uh, way of life for African Americans, despite you know our really desire to, to, to highlight the Underground Railroad and, and the heroic efforts of black and white abolitionists, um, it, it, it reminds us, I think, that um, of the forces folks were uh, arrayed against. 
I agree. And I want to ask you, what are you working on next? Well, a um, couple of different projects. Uh, one is about New York uh, in the Civil War period. Uh, so it's not really a sequel uh, to The Kidnapping Club, but it is um, a book I think that's going to be, you know, continuing the story of racial animosity uh, in uh, in Civil War New York, but also uh, some of the instances in which the city does change um, to become you know, sort of more in line with uh, what we think of as modern New York. Uh, the other book uh, I'm working on is about African-Americans and the Democratic Party from the Civil War to civil rights. And uh, we all know that uh, today the Democratic Party uh, relies very heavily, <clears throat> excuse me, on uh, significant uh, black electoral support. Uh, but as your listeners will no doubt know, uh, after the Civil War, the Democrats are the anathema. Um, it's the Republican Party that attracts the vote uh, and the, the support of uh, African-Americans, and with good reason, right? Because the Republican Party is the party of, of Lincoln, the party of Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Um, but remarkably, even uh, after the Civil War, and I'm talking particularly about the late 19th century, the 1870s, 1880s, um, and, and into the 20th century, there are black Americans who believe that their interest lies not in a strict sort of unquestioning alliance with the Republican Party, which is what Frederick Douglass more or less advocates, but it, it real, actually their best interests lie in either a political independence approach where you know they're willing to vote for Democrats if uh, the interests align with the black community or with an outright alliance with the Democratic Party, uh, particularly in areas of the rural South where the Democratic Party holds sway. So uh, I guess that's a long answer because you know, I'm really in the middle of it and I'm, I'm really finding it interesting. One, one other quick thing, this is uh, a guy named George Downing, um, sort of like David Ruggles, uh, who, who lives under the shadow of Frederick Douglass. But, you know, if, if you could point to one, um, you know, late 19th century black uh, man who could have competed with Frederick Douglass, you know, as the, the most iconic black spoke, spokesperson, it would have been George Downing. He's the son of Thomas Downing, the, the restaurateur I mentioned, um, and he carries on the restaurant business, becomes extremely wealthy, buys a house in Newport, Rhode Island amongst the white wealthy, and he's one of the most uh, powerful advocates of uh, the political independence movement and uh, occasionally even advocating alliance with the Democratic Party rather than the Republican Party. So it's about it's a book about, um, you know, why black Americans might want in their own minds to consider uh, voting for the Democrats. Wow. I'm looking forward to reading both of those. So both of those sound fascinating. So I'm so excited that you're working on both of these splendid projects. Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Wells. Thank you so much for having me, Katrina. I really enjoyed um, talking with you. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of The Kidnapping Club. It is an eye-opening history of antebellum New York. It is riveting. It is gripping. It's emotional, I can say that. And you will not be able to put it down because I was not. So I implore you readers, go up, go out and pick up a copy of this amazing book.